0: Gracious God, thank you for the many ways that you continue to uh, reveal to us glimpses of grace and what we pl- pray, O oh God, is that through this this time together that first of all, oh God, that you speak what you want to speak for the last six weeks, including this week we, we that's what we want. We all come carrying different burdens, we all come with different anxieties and misunderstandings and and so we pray, O oh God, that uh, your Holy Spirit will set those right. But also, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit actually reminds us who we are and whose we are, and that we're not alone, that all of those things and peoples and, and those uh, unknowns of the future and regrets of the past, that they all stand in the shadow of, the God, of, of you, O oh God, the Lord God Almighty. And so do that again today with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a, a recap, and, and um, we're going to go through 27 and 29. We'll, we'll touch a little bit on the in-between. And then some of you realize that there's an epilogue to this book. It's called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Now, we didn't ask you to read it, but I hope you all did. We're going to spend some time talking about that today. Um, as we uh, go forward. So I'll turn it over to Gil. Gil's going to do a recap and then um, I'll jump into 27, lesson 20 or uh, letter 27.
1: All right. And I do join John in, in hoping that you've enjoyed this class. I know it's been sort of a break. It's also been a break for some of your Sunday school teachers. I've, I, I think they have thanked us uh, uh, most loudly of all. As is true of so many of these things, I think John and I probably get more out of this and anyone else, and uh, I feel that way whenever I teach a class or or have the privilege of leading one. So, this has been uh, a good time for us. We will be looking at Screwtape Proposes a Toast, I hope you don't feel misled, Uh, I don't think we pointed you in that direction last time, but we talked about it, we texted back and forth about it. Uh, and it is important. We're also gonna look at the last chapter, chapter 31. On Screwtape Proposes a Toast, has has anyone read it? If so, raise your hand. Okay, all right. It looks like for some of you it will be a reminder or a refresher, and for others, hopefully it will point you toward reading it because it's very much worth reading. It's very much a commentary on our own times, uh, I think. Um, We decided we need to cover it, so we'll get there today. When we started six weeks ago, we talked about how the Screwtape Letters is actually a novel, uh, and how on earth can you talk about a novel without talking about the last chapter? So we are going to cover uh, chapter 31, because the truth of the matter is you can't do justice to a novel with talking about uh, its end as well. Uh, We're going to get there, but before we get there, we're going to recap just a bit. Uh, last week we looked quite hard at chapters 20, 21, and 23. Uh, chapter 20, you will recall, dealt with attacks on the patient's chastity. Uh, chastity, you may recall from mere Christianity, is one of the seven cardinal virtues uh, that the Church identified early on as being essential and non-negotiable for a maturing Christian life. The demons. Uh, basically are pondering in chapter 20 whether attacks on the patient's chastity are a feasible line of attack. Uh, We learn that the devil seeks to inculcate in us uh, an impossible ideal of the opposite sex, making us more and more desiring of something that simply does not exist. And as a result we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist making the role of the eye in sexuality more and more important and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. What follows you can easily forecast. So that was really sort of the gist of chapter 20 or letter 20, that is the devil's great approach with sexual temptation and actually a lot of other temptation as well, I was reflecting back on it. We noted that this is the devil's methodology But this also is probably a good time in our recap to remember uh, that that's who the devil is. Uh, In our first lesson, we learned that Jesus Christ referred to him as the father of lies. We also identified him as the thief of Christian joy. Uh, And we also noted over the last couple of lessons, he he is the great cheat. He is a great fraud. He is history's great con man, creating desires for us more and more that grow in intensity while delivering less and less in response to those desires. Uh, And it occurs to me, as long as we're recapping, John, that really every line of attack that we have seen described in the tape letters deals with one of these attributes of Satan, either his role as the father of lies, his role as the thief of our joy, uh, or his role as the great cheat, the great fraudster. Uh, and if you go back through the book, and I do hope you will, it's sort of interesting to think of him in that analytical framework, how he fits into one of those. And I think you'll find he's probably working in more than one of those uh, lines of uh, attack at any given time. So it occurs to me that, that an argument can be made uh, uh, that that every attack that we have seen fits into one of these three ways. Uh, As the father of lies, he keeps us unaware of our need for God's salvation and the uh, salvation that he offers through Jesus Christ. As the thief of joy, he keeps us from benefiting from our salvation and growing and maturing. Um, And as the great cheat, he tends to point us toward that which we don't have always wanting that which we lack and that's a theme that goes all the way back to the greeks if you think about like uh narcissus or always pondering for that which you can never attain and being destroyed in the process that's very much the devil's uh, work as well um for further reading on the subject of chastity you may want to go back to mere christianity we've talked about how these two books really interpret and comment on each other mere christianity and the screw tape letters I would direct you specifically to Book 3, Chapters 5 and 6 of Mere Christianity. Now we also looked last week at letters 21 and 23. Uh, in Letter 21, uh, having concluded that attacks on the patient's charity chastity were just not going to work very well, at least not at this juncture. Screw tape encourages wormwood to exploit the patient's tendency which all of us have nobody can pat themselves on the back here which all of us have to become easily annoyed by small petty things. For some it may be the wrong spoon on the table, for others it may be uh, the way the bed sheet is folded at the bottom of the bed. Uh, I don't know what it is I'm sure everyone has their their buttons but uh, it's what Lewis calls peevishness, the tendency to be annoyed by small trifling things. So uh, Lewis, uh, or I should say Uncle uh, Screwtape last week uh, used a couple of different examples and we'll look at those in just a minute. But this is sort of a quote that summarizes uh, this commentary on human nature. Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but misfortune conceived as an injury. In other words, it's not tragedy that bothers us, it's when we feel injured or wronged in some way. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured, and as a result, ill-tempered or peevish. Uh, So this is very fertile ground for the devil. Screwtape uses a couple of different examples and uh, he looks at time and how we take an ownership uh, interest in our time. Um, Screwtape uh, uses an example of how you can make the patient angry by interruptions in what he considers to be his time. Anybody else get annoyed with interruptions? Okay. All right, Lewis is using some very common examples. I hate interruptions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know these kind uh, of interruptions. Yeah. Okay. So great. So uh, (laughs) uh, while keeping the patient unaware that it's not his time, remember the devil. Trades and lies, he likes to keep us unaware of what's really going on, so he says you must not let the patient ever consider that it's not his time, that he cannot take credit for a single second that he enjoys, so uh, letter 21 explores this concept of ownership and how if we feel like something is being taken away from us, we can get annoyed in a hurry. Uh, screw tape also carries it over from time to ownership of our bodies. Uh, and then he ties the knot, puts the bow on top, and connects this theme of ownership of our bodies back with his original observations about ch- chastity and sexual temptation. We looked last week too at some examples of how that's often C.S. Lewis's methodology. He'll race ahead two steps and then come back uh, and help you understand his original point. In uh, letter 22, uh, we didn't really delve too deeply into that, but this is a novel, as we have observed, and letter 22 talks about the patient falling in love, horror of horrors. Worst thing that could possibly happen, he's fallen in love with a Christian girl from a Christian family. Uh, so in demon speak, in the demon world view, that is simply a terrible thing. Uh, in chapter or letter 23, we noted uh, that uh, Screwtape is counseling Wormwood to go back. Uh, and attacking chastity hadn't worked. Um... Setting him up with the wrong type of girl hadn't really worked. Uh, So how are we going to engineer this patient's downfall? Uh, Well, one way to attack it is by making his faith useless to him. Don't let it transform him. Don't let him grow more fully uh, into uh, maturity as a Christian. And there were several different lines of attack discussed. Uh, but uh, this sort of sums up the major one that kind of jumped out to me in chapter three. Uh, He urges the patient to take what we call the historical view of Jesus. In the last generation, he writes, Lewis writes, we promoted the construction of such a quote, historical Jesus, end quote, on liberal and humanitarian lines. We are now putting forward a new quote, historical Jesus, end quote, on Marxian catastrophic and revolutionary lines. The advantages of these constructions, which we intend to change every 30 years or so, they certainly kept the word there, are manifold. In the first place, they all tend to direct men's devotion to something which does not exist. For each historical Jesus is unhistorical. So this is really a critique written about, you know, during World War II of, of what we now call liberal Christianity and its tendency toward revisionism. It uh, reminded me a lot of, of a class I took in graduate school called A History of Heroism, where we looked at how heroes evolve in literature and mythology. Um, and one thing we came away with is the idea that who is heroic and how history is interpreted always depends on the obsessions of the historian. How we observe history, who we consider heroic, always depends on the obsessions of the historian. So if you don't believe it, look at how Homer characterized the Trojan War. Look at how Shakespeare, uh, the hatchet job he did uh, on the rivals to the Tudors. Uh, Look at Marx sitting in the British Museum and Library and the open letter that he wrote to Abraham Lincoln upon uh, the surrender of the Confederacy in the Civil War, uh, where he sort of gave a Marxian interpretation of the Civil War. So whoever is interpreting history always filters it through their lens. That's how human nature works. Um, So each narrative, it's interesting, takes us further and further away from the truth. And you can apply that to uh, our interpretation of Jesus and his gospel as well, which is what Screwtape counsels Wormwood to do. And he points out that one advantage of each of these new narratives is that they're all equally untrue. Um, And if you're not looking at or understanding who Jesus really is and what his gospel really says uh, uh, that, that's one in the bag for the devil. So uh, at any rate, that's one methodology that we often see at play is uh, uh, right now you hear a lot of talk about the social gospel. Um, you hear about revolutionary theology uh, in the Catholic church. But all of these are variations on what Tape is counseling Wormwood to do. If you can get him further and further away from what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually did, Then by talking about and filtering him through whatever the fad is of the moment, whatever the lens is of the moment, uh, you've accomplished your goal. You've sort of clouded and muddied the water a little bit. So, and actually not just a little bit, but in a big way. So,
0: John, let's move along to uh, letter 27. Yeah, 27 gets into the practical aspects of living out our Christian faith because what uh, Screwtape wants to do is discuss or encourage Wormwood to uh, convince his patient that uh, that prayer does not work. The practice of prayer does not work. In fact, this is what he writes here. But you can worry him with the haunting suspicion that prayer is absurd and can have no objective in its result. Now, I've got to tell you, this: what he is speaking here is is not just something for Wormwood's patient, because I would believe, tend to believe that there are moments in our own life where we've all experienced the idea of praying for something that did not quite turn out the way that we expected it to turn out, which I argue is a normal experience of Christians today. We go through this little conundrum, if we will. Um, we, we tell ourselves what Isaiah 55 7 or 8 and 9 says that God tells the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher. We believe that. We try to convince ourselves of this. But there's something that happens to our faith and our confidence in God that when our prayers don't turn out the way we experience or actually prayed, then there's something wrong with the relationship because is not that the way it is with all of our relationships that we have If something if a relationship seems to be overshadowed a little bit with of silence or something the first place that we jump to inevitably is what did I do wrong now if you're a husband and you're referring to your wife yes you did something wrong okay just get over it right but other times, there are moments when it's just something else that's going on. And we want to uh, route a traje- or map a trajectory where it is about us. What are we to go wrong? We, can't, we, we believe what God says, we be- but we can't help feeling um, slighted by God. That maybe God does not love us, or that we've done something wrong, or that God is is busy. And, And what this does is that this actually affects what? The next time you pray. So the more that this happens, even in the slightest way that you start thinking that God, oh, and then you dismiss it. God must not love me or something like that. But it affects us the next time we are asked to pray, or that we need to pray, or we go through our prayers. In the back of our minds, we start wondering more and more and more and more that God is distant. And it's because I've done something wrong or He no longer uh, loves me. So it's the psychological tricks that sometimes we play on ourselves where we inadvertently stack the deck against God or we stack the deck against meaningful relationship or rather meaningful prayer. In other words, God doesn't love us. That's stacking the deck against God or that this is, this is worthless. There's, there's no objective result because this is just the way I've just convinced them. So we stack the deck against any meaningful prayer. And all of this brings us to this haunting suspicion, haunting suspicion, that, that little voice inside of us that gets louder and louder and louder. So Screwtape wants to uh, advise a Wormwood how he can make this happen, and this is it. This is how you can do it. Don't forget to use that phrase or that argument, heads I win, tails you lose, Heads I win, tails I lose. And, and this quote is, is a common phrase that we use over and over that means um, to rig the situation, to rig the game, so that regardless of the outcome, one person will always win and one person will always lose. So often where we set things up in our favor, I have a lot of examples in my own life where I've done this. As a child, as an adult, or whatnot. Um, you probably have a lot of your own. It's, it's like me saying, you get to have your cake, and you get to eat it too. When Screwtape advises Wormwood to use this, he is trying to undermine what? The patient's faith in the effectiveness of prayer. And the argument that he makes uh, is, the argument makes the patient believe that regardless of whether their prayers are answered or not, they will still benefit in some way. For example, if the patient prays for a specific outcome that does not happen, Wormwood can suggest to the patient that, well, they were saved from some worse outcome. Or it was going to happen anyways, that if his prayer was answered in the way that he wanted, it was just a coincidence. And so what it does is it devalues the work of God. And it turns God into nothing more than a cosmic Santa Claus. And if you make your list, and you're naughty, or nice and not naughty, he's watching, you'll get what you ask for. Now what is the outcome for this for the patient? And I, this is where I want us to see ourselves. What is the outcome of this for the patient? The patient begins to believe that the practice of prayer is trivial. And what Wormwood can plant are doubts in the patient's mind about the effectiveness of prayer and doubts about God's willingness to answer prayers, which can lead the patient to become more and more discouraged and eventually giving up on prayer altogether. And so overall, Screw Tape's advice... Is, uh, Uh, advice to use, the heads I win, tails I lose argument, is a way to deceive the patient and undermine the purpose of prayer. Now, if we're honest, this win or lose often becomes the driving force behind our prayers. In such a way that the real drive of prayer, or the real reason behind the prayer, is a particular outcome. For many Christians, this is why we pray. It's the way we have been taught to pray as a child. Often we pray for a specific outcome. The prayer itself is often driven by the answer we expect or want, or the, in the time frame that we expect it. And all of these reasons for prayer seems counter to why we should pray, which is to grow our faith and confidence in God while deepening our relationship with Him. There's a quote that has been circulating around. It's often attributed to several different um, people. Søren Kierkegaard is one of them. Another person that it's uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and also, C.S. Lewis is often attributed for this, although we don't know exactly in any of his writings. He says this, or well, someone says this I pray not to change God, I pray to change me. What this means is that the recognition that prayer is not necessarily about the answer we expect, because the answer we expect is the answer we're praying. But it's more about changing our own hearts. It's more about aligning ourselves with God's will. Through prayer, Christians can gain a deeper understanding of themselves and not only a deeper understanding of themselves, they can gain a deeper understanding of their relationship with God. And they can be transformed by God's grace and love. Rather than trying to control, rather than trying to manipulate God through prayers, which ultimately comes by, if I do the right thing, I must not be doing something right, so i got to do more of this. I'm trying to twist God's uh, arm. I'm trying to manipulate Him. Christians can surrender themselves and to seek to become more like Christ in their thoughts, in their words, in their actions. Now, this has been seen. It's written about in Scripture, right? The Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's Jesus' words. That should become the, the purpose of prayer. It's not to manipulate God, but it is about what God is doing so that I can actually assimilate myself, my thoughts, my desires into what God desires. But it's also in the lives of some of the people of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 12, you have this, this passage where Paul is actually pre- praying. And if anybody, I believe, has a hotline to God, it was Paul. You know the bat phone to Commissioner Gordon. You know uh, has to Batman. I mean, you would think that Paul had all of his prayers answered, but yet three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should be uh, that it should leave me. You see his expectation. You see his motivation of prayer. But he said to me, "My grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect or complete." Is the actual Greek word in your weakness. Therefore. Paul says in response to this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or David in Psalm 139 at the end, Search me, O God. Search me, and even in this prayer, I want you to search my heart and make sure that it is, what? If it is pure. If there's any grievous way in me, and lead me to the way of everlasting. So our faith... Is the most prized possession that Christians have. And if we really cherish it, then we must nurture it. And if we don't nurture it, we will lose it. Ultimately, we're losing our confidence in God. And what happens in a relationship when you lose confidence in another? It breaks apart, it starts to crumble. And so the best way to keep our confidence is is to actually practice it. And the way that we practice it most effectively, most easily, most often, is in prayer. That when I pray, I can leave God my thoughts and my wishes. But what I am not driven by is my wishes and the answers that I expect. But what I'm driven by is that I believe that God is going to intersect and that God is going to step in and God is going to give them, give my uh, prayers uh, some um, attention, but he's going to do it in his wisdom of what he knows best. That's hard, isn't it? But remember when you were a parent, uh, if you were a parent of an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old, who at, when they turn 16 says, Dad, I want a Corvette. Or Mom, I want a BMW or something like that. Or I want a, you know, this or that. And you knew in your heart that this was wrong and it's not right. And, and you try to say no. You try to say this ain't right. This is not the right time for this. And there's some kicking and screaming. And that's how we are we're, because we're driven by the response. We, we want the expected response when it comes to prayer. But we got to trust that God actually does know what He's doing. I think that uh, I'm going to skip here to the end here for one second and then go back. Timothy Keller says it's not the quality of one's faith; it's the object of one's faith. If God is big enough to fix all the problems, He's big enough that you just might know why He doesn't. Let that sink in for just a second. That's big. So, I pray not to change God. I pray to change me. and This is part of the process God so desires in us. Prayer is not just about getting what we want, but it's about allowing God to transform us from the inmost part of our hearts and our souls that the devil tries to manipulate also. John Wesley actually said it well when he was in one of his sermons called the, um, the Spirit of Bondage and Adoption. He says this, Prayer is not designed to inform God of things unknown to him. You all agree with that, right? Prayer is not designed to inform God of things unknown to him or to move him to grant blessings which he is unwilling to bestow. Prayer is not about telling God something he doesn't know. And prayer is not trying to convince God to do something that he's unwilling to do. So, what is the purpose of prayer? It is rather the appointed means of seeking the blessing which he is willing to bestow, those which he has promised to give to those who ask him. Carlos Whitaker writes a book called Enter Wild, and inside that book, he talks about prayer. And what he says is, too many times we pray the problem. And what we need to do, what he encourages us to do, is to pray the promise. Now we can pray the problem. God, you just don't understand what my neighbor did, or you don't understand what this coworker did to me. You, I, I am going through something wrong. I've been wronged. Uh, I, I, I think it's an injury. You know, it's 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 something that's going on inside of me. I. There's nothing wrong with that unless if you go to the place where you pray the promise in addition. But if you stay on the problem, then you are not allowing faith to grow. You're not allowing confidence to grow inside
1: of you. In chapter 27, it looks like poor young Wormwood is continuing to twist in the wind and flail his arms, much to Uncle Screwtape's frustration, Uh, and that's where there's a good deal of the the humor in the book that comes through. At one place, uh, Screwtape works himself into such a lather about Wormwood's incompetence that the text just breaks off and uh, Screwtape's secretary has to step in and actually finish the letter points out that Screwtape has gotten so angry that he's turned himself into a giant centipede.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, um, so, uh, young Miss Toadpipe, uh, which is a great name by the way, Toadpipe, uh, steps in and has to uh, finish the job. Uh, just touching ground briefly in letter 28, um, uh, it, it gives us just a few details about what is going on in the patient's life The war is drawing nearer and nearer, uh, but instead of um, um, the patient being drawn more and more uh, to a worldly view of the war, uh, things that are worldly um, uh, tend to get crowded out of his mind. He's full of his defense work, full of the girl, forced to attend to his neighbors more than he had ever done before and liking it more than he expected. So things are continuing to go downhill as far as these demons are concerned. Um, The war is raging, bombs are falling. Important to recall here what we talked about in our very first lesson is that this is written against the backdrop of the Battle of Britain and Hitler's assault uh, on the United Kingdom. Uh, In letter 29, Um, they decide or Screwtape decides that it's time to start talking about how to exploit the war for the devil's cause. Uh, So far it's just not going very well for Mr. Devil, not going well for Uncle Screwtape, not going well for young Wormwood who is just falling far short of the mark. So Screwtape advises that uh, uh, there are three possible approaches when one is under the stress of something as traumatic as a war one, cowardice, two, courage, which like humility can be easily pricked and turned into pride, Uh, or three, pure hatred. So you have cowardice, courage, uh, which can be uh, morphed into pride, and you have hatred. Uh, And chapter 29 is really a commentary on all three. Uh, With respect to courage, which can be so easily pricked into pride, pride in one's courage. Um, This is um, pretty close to what the church historically has called the virtue of fortitude. Uh, There's a good deal about that in Mere Christianity as well on page 79. It is a cardinal virtue. Uh, It's what we in our world would sometimes call guts, Uh, just having the guts to deal with the situation, the guts to do something unpopular, the guts to rise above your circumstances or carry on when all else seems lost. Um, The problem with trying to use the patient's courage to attack his faith is what? Devil can't come up with courage. We talked about that earlier. The devil cannot create a single pleasure and he cannot create a single virtue. So if the courage is already there, then the devil may be able to exploit it for pride, but all he can do is corrupt courage. All he can do is corrupt virtues. All he can do is corrupt uh, pleasures. Um, So they turn their attention to hatred and to cowardice as ways to exploit the war for the devil's cause. Uh, Hatred is the easy part. Uh, It's very easy if bombs are being dropped on your head to hate the one who's dropping the bombs. Uh, Men can rationalize hatred. They can try to disguise hatred as righteous anger. They can rationalize it by saying, well, I'm not doing it for me, I'm doing it because of what you're doing to someone else. And Lewis goes through all of these ways that the patient can, can be induced to deceive himself about hatred. But he points out that hatred is half of the recipe. Hatred is at its most potent when you add an equal measure of cowardice. Uh, that is the recipe, that is the trick. Um, the uh, Grute points out that there is real risk uh, in making the patient a coward. Uh, The downside risk is that being a coward sometimes prompts intense periods of self-examination, self-awareness, repentance, and the next thing you know, the patient has uh, repented, he's rededicated himself to Christ, and he's a more resilient Christian than he ever was to begin with. So the demons have to be very careful when they're playing with cowardice because uh, it can in fact backfire with them. The chapter ends with a meditation by Screwtape screw tape on keeping the patient unaware uh, uh, and keeping him unaware of his plight. Uh, and one thing that's interesting in the end of the chapter is that uh, uh, one way to induce hatred, one way to induce cowardice and put them together into this particular potent mix is to make the patient aware of all of the precautions that are going on with war, which you may recall, if you have read up on the period, include alarms, drills. It was very much a, a culture that was at battle stations all the time. Uh, and that ongoing stress and anxiety can be very fertile ground for the devil, especially if, uh, he's trying to grow a sense of cowardice uh, in someone and a sense of hatred. Uh, but um, ultimately, the chapter ends with, with the uh, screw Tape telling Wormwood that if you can just keep him unaware, if you continue to stir the pot uh, and uh, stir up hatred and gin up cowardice in his soul, you can get him to a point where you can both destroy the patient and his soul. Uh, but as we know, that is not what happened. Chapter 31 begins, My dear, my very dear Wormwood, my puppet, my pig's nigh. I have no idea what a pig's nigh is, but it's another great word, kind of like toadpipe. All is lost when chapter 31 begins. Why is it lost? Because the patient has been killed. He's died. Uh, in chapter 27 and 29, The demon's discourse and screw tape talks about how time is the devil's ally. The longer someone lives, the greater they have an opportunity to mess up. But a young life, when the person has been brought fully into a relationship with Christ, um, that is the worst possible time for someone to die because they're ushered from one glory into the next. Uh, And so, uh, at any rate, uh, the way it ends uh, is that um, Wormwood is in big trouble, okay? He has failed, and he has failed miserably. Uh, we're told that uh, the, the devil uh, and the demons enjoy eating the souls of the lost, uh, but they also destroy the souls of the demons who fell them. Remember, there is no love in hell. Uh, remember, we talked about the philosophy of hell, where we always exist at each other's expense. Uh, it is a, a zero-sum uh, proposition that guides hell. Uh, and love is a mystery that makes no sense and cannot possibly be rationalized. Screwtape signs this, You're increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And there, the letter ends. Uh, and then we pick up with some what some call a sequel.
0: Yeah. So um, at the end of kind of that's kind of how it ends the the book of uh, that we've been studying. Um, but then there is in 1959, um, and you read if you read a little bit about C.S. Lewis writes his intro of why he how difficult it was for him to write read, write this book, and um, he thought about how he could write a sequel to it, but. Um, um, and how he came to the place of writing this toast. Up to this point, all the letters have been written to one, one demon, Wormwood. Now he is going to give the commencement address at the graduation of uh, at the Tempter's Training College for Young Devils. He's going to give the commencement speech. Now he's going to speak to a lot of, of different uh, demons who are about to go out into the fields, and uh, take up their own patient and tempt them. And uh, so this becomes how C.S. Lewis revisits this several years later, and it it is called um, Screwtape Proposes a Toast. He talks about several things in in this, and uh, one of the things that he talks about is the the current state of hell. And um, the current state of hell is um, up to this point, um, there's a lot of people coming in. There's a lot of new souls that are coming to hell. However, uh, they're quite tasteless when they feast on them. And uh, the, the, the second thing is the triumph and the skill of our tempters has never stood higher. So there's more people coming in. The tempters are becoming very, very uh, successful in this. And um, But hell is overcrowded. And Word from the lower command assures that the numbers are increasing, and it sounds like good news, but overcrowded uh, hell means that the, uh, the food down there is pretty poor in quality. This is what Screw Tape says. Our catches will be ever more numerous, but they will consist increasingly of trash, trash which we should once have thrown to service and the hellhounds as unfit for diabolical uh, consumption. Later on, he says, Oh, to get one's teeth again into a uh, Farinata, or a Henry VIII, or even a Hitler. There was real crackling there, something to crunch, a rage, an egotism, a cruelty. Cruelty, only just less robust than our own. It put up a delicious resistance to being devoured. It warmed your innards when you'd got it down. Instead... We are in this place where we have it tonight. There is graft, and there. But personally, I could not detect in him any flavor, any real passion, and only uh, uh, such as delighted uh, one in the great tycoons of the last century. So, because the food is tasteless, they have to. Uh, we should reimagine a, a new hell. Up to this point. The methodology of Satan has been to tempt individuals with their sins. And it can be addressed. But the problem with that, when you tempt individuals, is that the, the patient can then um, confess and can repent. And this becomes... Uh, This has now become outdated in their their time period. Um, The new approach would be focusing on promoting systemic vices that can lead large amounts of people and groups of people astray. Uh, That By promoting these vices, the tempters could create chaos. They can create division in any society. And this new hell would involve creating a society that focused on consumption and pleasure. A society is the key here. No longer individuals, but uh, a society. There, uh, he writes, There may come a time when we shall have no need to bother about individual temptation at all, except for a few. This is the old method. He says, Now the new method would be catch the bellwether, and his whole flock will follow him the influencer if a sheep could be an influencer but it was the one the other sheep would follow when they heard the bell and so the argument here is that the um that that the new way of tempting people would begin you find the movers and shakers you find the tempters or that you tempt the people who are the influencers who have the power and when you do that you change a society because everybody's not worried about the, the uh, individual sins, they see the greater idea of this is the right thing to do for social justice or, or whatnot. This becomes the next movement, and people follow the influencers. So you get those people in that area, and uh, you start uh, to affix their attention on how they can lead the people astray, and then the people will follow them. The way that this is done is you do it by education. You do it through mass media. You do it through political giants in those areas there. Education, too. Education, you can go through education. And I think one of the things that he says in uh, about education And we're not going to get all the way through this. I'm going to just stop here and I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger because you guys are going to need to read it on your own and get the full impact. But what's interesting is is how this speaks a lot to our our current uh, situation in our lives today. He says, begin to work itself into their educational system. These differences, this is on uh, page 203. These differences between the pupils, for they are obviously and nakedly individual differences, they must be disguised. This can be done on a various levels. At universities, examinations must be framed so that nearly all the students get good marks. Entrance exams uh, must be framed so that all or nearly all citizens can go to universities, whether they have any power or wish to profit by higher education or not. At schools, the children who are too lazy to learn The languages and mathematics and elementary science can be set to doing things that children used to do in their spare time. Let them, for example, make mud pies and call it modeling. But all the time, there must be no faintest hint that they are inferior to the children who are at work. In other words, take away excellence. Take away anybody, make, make someone who wants to be excellent in what they do, make him feel embarrassed by that. And you can lead a whole society away. Seems like there should be more commentary, but we're out of time. So, uh, any final note on that? we got about a minute. Yeah, I would just say, when I was reading this, uh, Screwtape proposes a
1: toast and I bet you may have the same thought too if you get to read it and I hope you do. It seems to be talking about us. Uh, it seems that in 1960 that Lewis had enough of a glimpse across the horizon of, of where Western civilization, English society uh, was headed in terms of the arts, in terms of education, in terms of the uh, academy, uh, in terms of just society at large. So. Uh, ask yourself that question uh, as, as you look at it. And uh, maybe he was talking about all times, all
0: eras, but it really struck home for me. Yeah, me too. As we go from this place, O oh God, I pray that you would go before us. You would remind us that we are yours and you are ours. Surround us, O oh God, with your most intimidating angels and protect our minds and our hearts so that, O oh God, we are not drawn astray and keep our hearts and our eyes on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.